0: Do you have your Bibles with you this morning? I hope so. Take them out and let's turn them to Romans chapter 14 this morning, as once again we are inestimably privileged to hear from God as he speaks to us through his word. We're going to read, actually, we're going to read all of chapter 14 and down through verse 7 of chapter 15. So follow along as we enter into a new uh, portion of Romans this morning. Romans 14, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and this, as I say, is God speaking to us this morning. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the scripture that we have, that we can open up and that we can read and that we know comes from you, is breathed out from you. And we know that it is for our good, for our instruction, And we pray that you would instruct us through this time, Lord, and help us as we consider these things. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What is the most fragile thing in the church? Well, as a pastor, I can tell you that the most fragile thing in the church is unity. And the most dangerous thing in a church is disunity. Factions in the church. Uh, Differences and the the fervor with which those differences are maintained in the church. And the things sometimes over which disagreements uh, spring up. The way we deal with disagreements. If people in the church were as committed to the centralities of the faith and as immovable on the doctrines of grace and the, the teaching of the scripture as they are very often on oh, the color of the carpet or whether decaf is served at the refreshment time. Oh, what a difference we would see in the members of the church. The New Testament, of course, speaks quite a bit about unity, the necessity of unity, Jesus said, a house divided against itself will not stand. Paul urged the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he urges the church elsewhere to complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, he says, not only on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. An outward focus on others is a way to to assure unity in the church. And as Paul comes now to chapter 14 in the book of Romans, he's going to address address the subject of unity. This section which goes from the beginning of chapter 14 all the way, we didn't quite read all the way, it goes all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. And this really represents the last main topic in the book of Romans, the last main topic that Paul's going to address. And it is instructive instructive that he chooses to end this main body of this letter with this long section on unity. So it must be important, and it is, not just to the Roman church, but it is important to every church. It's important to this church. So let us give these verses then our undivided attention as we work through them over the next few weeks. It'll take us a few weeks to to work through these. And Paul approaches this topic here in this place in an interesting way. He could talk about the things, various things that, that work to destroy unity or work against unity. He could talk about gossip and how destructive that is to the unity of the church. He could talk about false doctrines or false teachings that can tear a church apart, the importance of, of those as he does in Galatians. He could talk about false teachers that come from the outside and the vain and deceptive philosophies which which could come in and, and insert themselves into the church and cause divisions like he does to the Colossian church. But here Paul speaks of a specific type of disunity that was apparently a particular issue in the church of Rome. And this issue, this situation that was going on, fits in perfectly with what he's been talking about. It goes right along with with what he has been talking about really since the beginning of chapter 12. He talks about something that is a particular aspect of our offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And it goes right along with his subsequent teaching. In chapters 12 and 13, that we are to love one another, that we are to let that love be genuine, to be sincere, that we are to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. What we have really in this section of Romans in chapters 14 and 15 is Paul's exposition, his his explanation of a specific expression of that love to others in the church. Now, keep in mind as we as we look at this that in the New Testament, churches were probably no bigger than our congregation at best. Remember, churches in the first century met in homes, and they were limited then to how many people could fit into those homes. And so, as we know so as we know so well, The effects of of anything that happens within the church, whether good or bad, are magnified when the numbers are small. And And the effects of any kind of negative things are especially dangerous. You know, we, we recognize here the, how the effects of, of something in a small congregation can be. Even, even to the point of when we've got one family or two families missing for a Sunday or they're gone away, we really, it really makes a difference. We really notice it. But the negative things, the bad things, are especially uh, prominent in a smaller congregation. Gossip interpersonal friction any kind of division can have an effect beyond what you might think it seems to be magnified within a church and it's one of those types of situations that paul's going to instruct us in as i mentioned his treatment here runs through the middle of chapter 15 this morning we're just going to look at the the first part of that and we're going to look at four things the first thing that we're going to look at is the, the expression of unity the expression of unity Look what he says there in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So as we begin here, and this is going to carry on all the way through this this section, Paul deals with two groups of people that we need to define really at the outset, and we're going to begin by doing that. We need to define it properly because the categories can be misunderstood. He mentions one of them here in verse one. He mentions those who are weak in faith. The other group that doesn't get a name until we get to the beginning of chapter 15, uh, there he speaks of those who are strong. So there are the two groups: those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. But what does he mean by that? What does that refer to? What does he mean? What, is, what does it mean to be weak in faith? Now, it certainly appears that that there's something defective. I mean, he uses a a term that we understand as a, a negative kind of term weakness. Something is defective. Something is missing. Something is suppressed in that first group. There's a reason that Paul chooses the term weak, it's not a compliment. But it is, after all, perhaps not as negative as we might think that it is. What does it mean? Does it mean that, that the weak people have a, a defective faith in Christ? Perhaps they're not even really Christian. Well, no, that's not the case. We'll soon see that both groups here are Christians, that they are seeking to serve the Lord with their lives. Not only are, there, are they Christians, but we would call them good Christians from what we can learn there's nothing the weak does not point to anything defective in that way does it mean maybe that the weak people do not believe in christ as much as they should no it doesn't mean that either and he commands here that they are to be welcomed by in verse one welcomed by presumably and actually those who would be considered the strong in faith that's who he's talking to at the beginning are the strong and he says to the weak in faith welcome them Well, to see what Paul does mean by weak in faith and to learn what he means by strong in faith, let's take a quick jaunt over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Paul, in the book of Galatians, a wonderful book, he has been demonstrating to his readers in no uncertain terms that the Christian is justified by faith alone apart from works, apart from any works of the law. He's pounding on that here in the book of Galatians. That the Old Testament law and obedience to that law is not intended to, nor is it able to, save anyone. Keeping that law, being circumcised according to the law of Moses, those things are of no help in obtaining salvation. And as he comes to chapter 5 and to verse 1, he says this. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Because Christ has come and has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law on our behalf, we've been freed from having to try to, to... obtain salvation that's ridiculous to do Paul is saying in fact he says that it's another gospel in Christ he says we have freedom for freedom Christ has set us free has set us free that we may enjoy the freedom that we have freedom from trying to earn our salvation freedom from the curse of the law freedom from the penalty of sin And freedom from having to be under the thumb of the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law as well. Christ in His life and His work fulfilled everything, not just the sacrifices, we often think of those, but also all of the ceremonies, all of those other things, the feasts and the the restrictions given under the ceremonial parts of the law. Christ has fulfilled all of that. They pointed to Him. They pointed to what He would fulfill. Paul says we have freedom in Christ from all of that. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, he says, it doesn't matter. And that gets us back to what Paul is talking about, what he means by this idea of weak faith or strong faith. And you can go back to Romans if you would turn to Galatians. Because he's saying here, not everyone is yet on the same page of that truth. Not everyone has has really fully imbibed that truth and enjoying that truth. Not everyone has the same strength of faith in that regard. You see, sometimes we use the word faith or belief in a way where we're talking specifically about one's trust in and reliance on the divine person and the finished work of Jesus Christ and his atonement for their sins. This belief is the instrument by which we receive the free gift of salvation. That's one way that we use the idea of faith and belief. But at other times in the scripture, belief or believing has the notion of believing that something is true or legitimate. So sometimes faith is belief in something... And at other times, it is belief that something. Here in Romans 14, it's the latter. It's belief that something. When Paul describes someone in the church here as weak in faith, he's not saying that their faith in Christ as Savior and as Lord is somehow deficient. He is saying that there are some who have not yet grasped or embraced the freedom that Christ has given to them. These are believers who have not yet realized that their faith in Christ has freed them from especially certain ritual observances, aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial law, and and they believe, these weak in faith, believe that they are and are conscience-bound to continue to observe some of these things. And Paul's point here is is that those people, though of course Paul would would wish that they would become strong, that is that they would become convinced of of the appropriate freedom that they have in Christ through the gospel, that at this point that their relative weakness and, and others' relative strength in the church He is saying here, and his point here is that those relative weaknesses or strengths must not be a cause of division in the church. That's Paul's point throughout this section. So he's speaking in verse 1, as I said, to the strong regarding the weak, and he says to the strong, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Welcome the weak, Paul says. Welcome him into your number. Welcome him as a full brother. Welcome him fully into the fellowship of the church. But not, he says, but not to quarrel over opinions. That is, don't invite him in, don't welcome him just so you can harangue him about his weaknesses, about those places that that his faith is not Perhaps fully developed to understand all that he is freed from. Welcome him as a brother in the Lord. And love one another. See this ties it back to what Paul has been saying. Don't invite him in just to quarrel over disputed matters. These are are practices um, that, that he's talking about here that makes one weak practices which the obligation to has been removed but the practice of which has not been positively forbidden paul's take here is going to be this that the things that we must not let me rephrase that a different inflection the things that we must not divide over we must not divide over you get that The things that we don't have to divide over, we shouldn't divide over. That's Paul's point. Now we have to be careful. Not every difference is to be welcomed into the church. There is a huge difference between what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14, what are sometimes called disputed matters. Uh, Sometimes we use the Greek word adiaphora, things indifferent, there's a huge difference between those things and what we would call false teaching, false doctrine. And Paul is saying that those who believe these adiaphora or have a particular opinion on them are to be welcomed. They're to be accepted as brothers. Whereas, he says elsewhere, that those who bring false teaching, false doctrines on substantive issues... Well, we were just in Galatians 1, right? Or in Galatians. And in Galatians 1, Paul says that even if we or an angel from heaven came and preached to you any other gospel than what you received from us, that he is to be considered accursed. So you can get the things he's going to talk about here in Romans 14 wrong and are to be welcomed. But you can't get the things like the gospel wrong. Those who bring false teaching are to be dealt with. Those who bring, bring division into a church are to be dealt with. That's part of the work. The job of the elders of a church is to guard it against false doctrines and those who bring them, so that the sheep of the flock will not, as he says in Ephesians, be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. As important as unity in the congregation of the body of Christ is, it must always be unity around truth. Because without truth, faithful teaching regarding the word of God, without that there can't be any true unity. But those things, those serious types of things, are not Paul's subject here. Here he's concerned with unity in the church not being disrupted by either the weak or the strong and their attitudes towards the other party in regard to indifferent matters. Now just who these people are, there's some difference of opinions. Who are the strong? Who are the weak? As Paul writes to the church at Rome. There are difference of opinions, but I think by far the most likely answer is that Generally speaking, the weak are the Jewish believers in the Church of Rome. Because of their background, because of their history, because of their their Jewishness and what they have come from, what they have learned, they still have very strong ties to that Old Testament and, and they find themselves unable or unwilling to let go of some of those ceremonial elements of the law. And for some of those, Paul is saying here, oh well, basically. The strong, on the other hand, are are more likely, generally, again, the Gentile believers, who don't have those aspects of the Old Testament that Paul teaches that have been removed, uh, we say have been abrogated through the work of Christ, that those things are not a part of their psyche like they would be to the Jewish believers. Now, I say generally speaking, Because there's one notable exception to that, and that's Paul himself. He is a Jewish believer, but he considers himself, we'll see it over in chapter 15, that he considers himself among the strong. In fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, We who are strong, including himself in that category. But notice he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, to bear with the weakness of the weak. So that's the command here. And then Paul's going to give us a couple of examples to show us what he's talking about. Two examples, and there will be a third that, that, that is mentioned briefly a little later, but basically two examples. The first example relates to differences of opinion regarding food. Verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the first difference, the first adiaphora, the first point of, of disputed things uh, is this idea of the food that one can eat. You see, this is not an issue of salvation, it's not a cardinal doctrine of the church. It's not part of the gospel, narrowly defined. It is, by Paul's inclusion of it here, an indifferent issue. He says that one person in the church believes He may eat anything. Well, this would be the person that falls into the strong category as Paul is laying this out. Such a person knows that that the restrictions over clean and unclean food have been removed in the New Testament. Mark, in his gospel, records Jesus' words in Mark 7, 18, that, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. And then Mark adds this, thus he declared all foods clean. And then, of course, there's that episode in Acts chapter 10 with, with Peter. And he's, have, he's on his roof. He has the vision, the sheet comes down that's, that's full of all of these unclean foods. And, and a voice from heaven tells him, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, typically Peter, talks back to God and says, by no means, Lord. I, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I have held to those, those dietary laws of the Old Testament But then God replies to him and says, what God has made clean, don't call common. So it's clear that this has been removed. But some people still have not grasped that yet, is what Paul is saying here. The weak person, he says, eats only vegetables. It's interesting. These people have gone even beyond the Old Testament regulations and only eat vegetables, which is not an Old Testament command. Once once we're past the flood... The Old Testament never teaches, never commands vegetarianism. In fact, Genesis 9.3 teaches just the opposite. That every animal is given to you for food. Does that mean you have to eat it? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. Because there's a difference of opinion. It could be that, that these folks, these the weak folks, with additional concerns maybe about... The use of meat in a pagan context, and and we read in Corinthians and such about that discussion. In a place like Rome, kosher laws would be non-existent, basically. Uh, Perhaps that question of meat being offered to idols. They just decided, these considered weak people, just decided that, that they needed to not just follow the dietary laws of the Mosaic commands. Uh, not to eat, but not to but to not eat meat at all, and they eat only vegetables, but the point is what Paul is getting at here is in verse three: he says, "Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. do not Paul says in this indifferent thing don't look down on one another and by the way it can go both ways we'll we'll continue to see that here he says the one who is able to eat these things without troubling their conscience must not be despised by the one who abstains it goes both ways but the one who abstains the one who eats only vegetables is not Paul says to pass judgment on the one who eats So the temptation to judge one another on these types of things, and these are examples, we can think of other things in in our situation that fit these things. Our temptation is to judge one another on both sides. You know, the one who eats everything may look at the one who doesn't and sort of dismiss him and and mock him as immature. To disdain him as, as hung up on those old requirements. But on the other hand, the weak may look at those who eat as indulging in license and not being particular enough. And they may see themselves, the weak may see themselves as sort of the righteous remnant in the church, the truly devoted to God and His Word, and despise the other or to pass judgment on them. Neither is appropriate. That's Paul's point. Because both tend toward disunity. This is not an issue to divide over and therefore you must not divide over it. Even though Paul begins with the command to the strong that the weak person must be welcomed, here at the end of verse 3, he he is sort of emphasizing the responsibility of the weaker brother not to pass judgment on the one who eats all things. He says that the weak must not pass judgment on the strong because God has welcomed him. Which he then elaborates in verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So a, a, a very strongly worded question, it harkens back to Romans chapter 9 where he says, who are you to answer back to God? God. Here he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In these situations, Paul says, it is not your job. It is not the job of the weaker brother to pass judgment. It's above their pay grade. God is the one who will deal with that. God is his judge, not you. God is his Lord, not you. And, Paul says, the Lord, our brothers and sisters, uh, are, are not that. They are not our servants. They are the Lord's servants. So for those who, who are able to eat anything, they should not despise those who can't. And those who can't should not pass judgment on those who can Let's look at a second example. Paul moves here from the question of food and what may or may not be eaten to the subject of the Old Testament patterns of days. In verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See, so now the question here is, is what, what is he talking about? What day or what days is Paul referring to? Well, unfortunately, he doesn't give us any help. He doesn't help to to show us what he's talking about. There were many days that were of great importance to the Jews, and many of them would fit this situation. Festivals. Remember the Old Testament festivals? There were days of fasting. There were weekly, uh, seventh-day Jewish Sabbath, and so on. Perhaps Paul's vagueness is intentional here. And that we should include any or all of these in Paul's statement here. And while he doesn't use the term weak or strong here, he's clearly still talking about the same two groups. And clearly the one who is weak in faith would be the one who, verse 5 says, esteems one day better than another. And this because the Old Testament ceremonial law esteemed some days as higher than others. Some is more important. Some is more holy than another. Again, those distinctions are removed under the New Covenant, but some may not yet grasp that. By the way, we should be careful to note that a seventh-day Sabbath is done away with, but this concept of one day in seven being set apart, which is part of the moral law, the fourth commandment, is not. But under the New Covenant, that one day in seven is now not the seventh day, it's the first day of the week. And while it would have held for the Roman church as surely as it does for us today, being a new covenant distinctive, that doesn't really fit into what Paul is dealing with here. So there are some who believe that some days are more important than others. And the others, the strong, Paul said, would be those who would recognize that those distinctions have passed away and therefore he esteems all days alike. Once again, the important thing in Paul's context here is that there should be no despising of those who esteem those days by those who do not and no passing judgment on those who see every day alike by those who distinguish some days as better than others. And once again then, Paul having explained that gives to us an explanation. It's in verses 6 through 12. He extends it really here to to cover more situations. But he starts by saying that the one who sees distinction in the days does so for a particular reason. Look at verse 6. He says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, see he's expanding that now, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So he says that the one who observes special days observes observes those days in honor of the Lord. They've not yet grown to the place where they're able to set aside celebrating special days from the Mosaic Law, those feasts and Sabbaths and things like that but others have now once again let's make a critical qualification here and this is paul's assumption that that is part of the situation he is addressing that is that these who are distinguishing days he says are doing so in honor of the lord See, these are not people who think that by keeping a day or keeping any aspect, by eating certain things or, or keeping any aspect of the ceremonial law, that they are making themselves right with God. He's not talking about people who have like, fallen off into that error. This is rather both of these situations and other situations like it are, are the attitude of a true Christian who knows that he is saved by grace through faith and is now seeking to honor God either by his keeping of certain days or by his not keeping of certain days. Of eating only vegetables or holding to any other indifferent thing due to not yet understanding of the things that have been done away with. He's not mature in his faith. But the weak do What they do in this case, in honor of the Lord. The strong, the one who eats, the one who esteems all days alike, does so in honor of the Lord. The one who does not eat meat does it in honor of the Lord. Both do it to honor the Lord and both give thanks to God for what they receive and for what they eat. In verses 7 through 12 then. Paul says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord both of the dead and of the living. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or why do you despise your brother?" For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Each one of us, Paul is saying, everyone in the church who is a true believer was bought, was purchased by Christ and we are his. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is the one that we serve. He is the one before whom we stand or fall. Paul is saying that whatever we do, we do as a servant of Christ. He brings in the judgment. He says at the end we're all each individually going to stand before God. Not before you, strong person, not before you, weak person, but before God. These indifferent things are not ours to judge, are not ours to separate over, are not ours to quarrel over. We can discuss them. The Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. We can seek to help one another grow. But as Paul said at the beginning, we welcome one another. In the case of these indifferent things, Paul is saying, again, the key thing is that the one whose conscience allows him to eat all things as well as the one who does not. The one who holds up certain days as holy and those who count all days the same, making no distinction between those days. They are doing these things as unto the Lord. Paul says that's what's important. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what's important. And we need to understand that with one another. If you disagree with me on one of these types of indifferent things, I need to understand that you are holding to your opinion because you seek to honor the Lord in it. And you need to do the same for me. In 1 Corinthians again, Paul goes on and he says, Give no offense to Jew or Gentile or to the church of God. And that's Paul's point here, that we not give offense to one another. That we not set ourselves up in the place of God to judge those whom God has accepted and whom He will cause to stand, whom Christ has purchased. You know, in our day, there are various things that are part of the life of the church that, that fall into this category. For some people, it's food. For some people, it's days. There are, those other, there are other things that have either been done away with or that are not forbidden but, but, but are not really spoken of. You know, I mentioned a third thing that Paul's going to bring in. The third thing is, is drinking alcohol. That's a huge situation that fits into this. Other things. uh, Homeschooling. There are people who are convinced that homeschooling is what they need to do to honor God. There are others who don't. We shouldn't divide over that. We should welcome both opinions. Now, once again, though, before we wrap up here, let me mention again, we are talking about Indifferent things. We are talking about those things from which Christ has freed us, but which doing does not condemn us. Does the Bible say you shall not celebrate the Feast of Booth? No. That you must not celebrate the Passover? Does the Bible say you must eat meat? No. These things are adiaphora indifferent and there are some people though who want to apply paul's instruction here to all of the teachings of the bible to say that the only thing that is important in the church or the beliefs of the church is one's intent is one's attitude as long as you have a good attitude you can believe whatever you want but that's not true You can't just plug any issue into what Paul says in verses 6 or 7. Tell me how this sounds. The one who commits adultery commits adultery in honor of the Lord. The one who refuses to forgive his brother refuses in honor of the Lord. The one who creates division creates division in honor of the Lord. We know that those things do not honor the Lord and they cannot be made to honor the Lord. But in these cases, in the indifferent things that Paul is discussing, the critical thing is is the heart. Are people doing this to honor the Lord? Do everything in honor of the Lord. Do all to the glory of God. And if your brother is doing that but disagrees with you on one of these things, accept him. Don't despise him. Don't judge him. So Paul is saying, let the strong welcome the weak. Let the weak welcome the strong. And let there be unity in Christ's church. Obviously we have more to say on this. Paul has more to say on this. And we will see it in coming weeks. But for now, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Father of all. We thank you for the unity of the spirit that we have. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, as Paul instructs here, to maintain that unity to foster that unity, to encourage that unity. That we would not do anything to disturb that unity, that true unity around the truth of your word and the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the things that are indifferent and the things that are critical, the things that we must abide But, Father, help us to know that if it is not something that we must divide over, that we must not divide over it. Give us a heart of love for one another. Grant us unity within our congregation. Help us, Lord, to to put up with one another and our varying opinions. Lord, we know that there is no one among us who has every aspect of their ethic perfectly right. So we pray for your grace as well. And help us to show grace to one another. And may the king of the church be glorified because of it. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.